You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something, people. This week, weather-wise, has been insane, okay? Now, you figure, I moved back a year and a half from L.A. I am from New Jersey. I know what cold is. But this week, on like Sunday, I looked at my app. It was like 55 degrees. And then I saw what it was going to be Monday. Monday, I wake up. It's 5 with a wind chill factor of minus 9. And then yesterday, it's like 58 with rain. And today, it's Thursday. It's I mean, today, it's like 30. So I don't know what's going on with this weather. But I hope we get some consistency because I want to be prepared to be cold or prepared to be warm. Anyway. Impossible. It's crazy. (laughs) Anyway, we have a great show today. My guest is from New Jersey, and I'll tell you something. He's one. He's part of a not. He's part of a great band. But the second thing is, he's part of a great band that's from New Jersey. And third is, he's part of a great band from New Jersey that actually had a song on Miami Vice. And you know, you people, I love the eighties. And my guest is a Smithereens guitarist, Jim Babchuk. How you doing, Jim? Great, thank you. And I'm one of those people that went out to see the solar eclipse when it was five degrees the other <laughs> night. I'm looking at it, 10 seconds go by, and I'm getting frostbite. And I'm like, okay, I've seen enough. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's amazing because, you know, it's been, everyone's saying it was going to be this crazy winter. And knock wood, you know, we've been lucky that the big storms have been missing us. But, you know, we're not used to a wind chill factor minus nine. You walk out and your hands feel like they're going to fall off. Yeah, and I'm in Jersey City right now, so I'm right by the Hudson River, you know, overlooking, uh, looking at Manhattan, you know, where the new World Trade Center is. And it's wind, it's the, the wind here is crazy. It'll just, if I was wearing a toupee, it would knock the toupee off my head. (laughs) Jersey guy, and I love the fact, and then, you know, you're in this band from Jersey. When did, when did you start playing guitar and getting into the music world? Hmm, 1968. Eight or nine. I was. I had accordion lessons before that, 1964. And coincidentally, our bass player Mike Pizarro's had the same accordion teacher, and we had our communion together when we were seven years old. Um, so uh, yeah, and then I played the violin in '66, and then uh, my dad let me get a guitar, which was a real piece of crap from. I don't know if you remember two guys. Oh yeah, it was. <laughs> it, it came with a little plastic amplifier, <laughs> which we used to use at the Dirt Club to to tune up our guitars in the '80s when we were, you know, playing there. And and I remember one night it just started smoking, and then it just fizzled out, and that was it. We couldn't afford tuners back then. But anyway, yeah, guitar, and then. You know, I met Dennis in 1971, and then uh, when I was a freshman in high school, and then, uh, you know, we started playing together immediately. Um, so that's that's how it started. Now, who were some of your influences back then? Because, you know, everyone sits there, you know, you sit there and you think about New Jersey, and now the, the sound has come later. Like, I grew up near Philadelphia, so in the 80s, our sound was the Hooters and the A's and, and you know, Robert Hazard. And New Jersey, I think of Springsteen and Southside Johnny. But who were your influences when you were really cutting your teeth on learning to play the guitar? Well... You know, it's easy to say the Beatles because it made an impression on everyone at my age. And but it's not just that; it's it's AM radio. What was the thing? You know, uh, when I was in seventh grade, and you know, the Guess Who, the, the singles like "No No Time Left for You" and 
uh, just the, the, everything that was on the radio seemed to be great. You know, when you had you had Johnny Cash, you had the Beach Boys, you had uh, Motown, you had the British Invasion, you had a very eclectic uh, mix of, of music, Con- you know, country. And, you know, the other day I had uh, Rose Garden in my head for some reason by Teresa Brewer. I couldn't get it out of my head, you know. Um, so it, it was just everything that I grew up with. You know, and then and then once once FM ra- I got FM radio in the seventies, and it was all over. You know, because then you started hearing all the the longer versions of songs and album cuts that you'd never hear on on the radio. Uh, you know, by the Who and the Stones, and um, you know all that stuff. The Kinks. You know, Dennis and I we started to go see the Kinks live uh, back in seventy four, and never missed a show. You know, we would go every night. Now, when you guys were sitting there, you know, you're listening to music, you're playing, when would you decide to when you wanted to really put the band, a band together and take it seriously? Did you go to college or did you just graduate high school and go into music? <laughs> yeah, I'm just like John Belushi. I went to a two-year college for six years and never graduated. I'm like four credits away. And I actually went back and said, can I get, get the degree from life experience? And they said, no, we don't do that here. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway... Um, You know, yeah, our career paths changed. You know, my dad owned a tavern, and I was destined to be a a tavern owner. But you know what happened? And Dennis and I kept playing all along. We had different lead singers, and, you know, Mike was playing bass. And um, the three of us already had a sound. We were all together, and then, you know, we met Pat through an ad. And... um, what really, but before, before we met Pat, when we started to get a little serious was going to CBGB's after a Wings concert in 1976, and we saw a band called Television, and this just blew me away. And when you're a kid, and all you see, you know, you go to Madison Square Garden, and you see these, uh, you know, The Who, or Zeppelin, or whatever, and it's like larger than life, and, and as a kid, you're like, how the hell can I ever achieve this? How can I even possibly think that I could be in a band, you know, and, and, and make records? But that night, when we went to CBGB's, Dennis and I, it seemed so real to me. And then the bands coming out of there got signed, uh, the Ramones, uh, Blondie, um, uh, Talking Heads. I saw them there with three people in the audience. And that's when I realized, hey, you know, let's let's give this a shot and let's get serious about it. So Dennis put an ad in the paper and uh, he met Pat. And then, um, you know, there it was. We had a lead singer uh, who could also write songs. and uh, And it went from there. You know, but then it took us another six years to get a record deal. So, you know, we just played every every club imaginable that uh, that we could. We even went to Boston and Ohio, spread out a little bit. But you know, that's uh, couldn't really get far until uh, because it really took a record deal and and radio airplay to get exposure, and then. Uh, then you're an overnight success right? <laughs> after all those years. <laughs> well, now you were sitting there, you said it took six years. I'm sure you're cutting your teeth playing, you know, all the gigs, the bars, as you said. Why, yeah. was, a, why was a record deal eluding you? Did, was people just not coming out? Did people not, you know, were, were not into your sound? What was it? I'm sure there's other people, you know, who may have gotten record deals at the time, but why 
were you not getting the recognition? Were people just not the right people coming out? It's just the not not the right people. I mean, Pat sent uh, and we sent uh, letters and demos to every record label imaginable, everyone, and we got rejected from all except one. Eventually, Enigma Records out of uh, California. It's funny. A lot of people thought we were from California after we got signed. <laughs> We'd say now we're from Jersey, but um, and it was just because we had an independent record out, and the guy that just got hired at Enigma happened to know our name from when he was a college DJ and played one of our independent records, Beauty and Sadness, and he figured he'd give the give a tape a listen, and uh, and it was just by 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 uh, chance that uh, he listened to the tape and, and liked it and then played it for the uh, the powers that be at the company. Um, I forgot the original question. I think I got a little off. No, I was just asking, but, why uh, weren't you getting, you, know, you answered it right. It's just saying, why weren't you getting signed, but you did get signed. Well, so, so, I mean, so that, but it took a while to this guy. He had to know your music from college radio. Yeah, and the other thing is, I, I don't know if the, radio or record labels were ready, you know, because um, I guess R.E.M. had uh, a little splash going on with their first first thing. And it's funny, when, when our first album came out, I go into a record store and look under rock, and I wasn't in there, and they had this new section called Alternative Rock. And I'm like, what the hell is Alternative Rock? But I guess it was alternative to Madonna and Michael Jackson and everything on the charts. And I remember hearing Blood and Roses on, on WNEW, the big station in New York at the time, and Blood and Roses came on, and it just sounded so, to me, it sounded fresh. And it, and I couldn't believe it was me playing on it because with all the compression and everything, it sounded better and different. But it, it didn't seem to fit into what was on the radio at the time. It was just, um, you know, and then... Uh, I don't know. It's just uh, it struck a chord with people, and and we just got lucky. Well, it was you know? it was fresh. Um, it was fresh because I remember hearing it. I remember hearing that song. And just said I used to listen to uh, WMMR in Philly and YSP and different things because I was right outside there. And I, yeah, big supporters of us. Yeah. yeah, and I remember it was like anything you remember. I remember hearing that song and going, "Hey, this is really cool." It's like the first time when I heard uh, Joe Jackson and she really going out with him on on WMMR. Yeah. I was like, "Holy crap." What is that? But your sound was different because, as I said, the Philadelphia sound, as I said, was the Hooters, the A's. It was more poppy, except Tommy Combo grinded a little bit. Gritty sound, which was cool because I think we were looking for something different. Yeah, we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, <laughs> it's funny. We were just doing what we, we do, and, and we were hoping people would like it. So <laughs> it's just very strange how things uh, happen like that. You know, we didn't set out to make a hit record or anything. We were doing what, what we do. Now, when they started playing Blood and Roses, did you start getting more recognition? I know you guys probably made a video. Where did, did your career, did you feel your career was changing a little bit? And the funny thing is your band was probably so tight because you're playing for six years. It's not like an overnight success. You know, they see people now, they might do one thing and they go live and they stink because they're not used to it. You guys must have been so tight as a band from playing those gigs. When you sat there and people started recognizing you, were you starting to get a good following? Yeah, I mean, we were tight. So we were with Mike playing five years before we even met Pat. So you add the other six, that's 11 years. And 
damn, I forgot the original question. <laughs> no, if you guys were tight or not. Yes, and uh, I still can't remember my train of thought, but <laughs> well, <laughs> um, never mind. That's all right. So, um, so, so when was your you're getting you're getting airplay? Did you notice your popularity yeah. gaining? Did you sit there and notice that people were getting a catch of you? Oh yeah, yeah. So that's what happened. We got signed to Premier, a booking agent, and they they booked the who and the police and the Ramones. And there was a list of like a hundred bands that are, they were huge. I mean, premier the Frank Barcelona brought the Beatles over, you know? Uh, and he brought over the cream. It was called the cream at the time and the who for their first shows in 67 in the United States. So what they did was they put us out to the lions. Our first gig with them was opening for ZZ top in a, in an arena in West Virginia. <laughs> so we show up in, in this, you know, we just fall out of a van, kind of like in uh, Fast Friends of Richmond High, you know. <laughs> ZZ Top is there with like three buses and, you know, what kinds of... So Ted Nugent was also on the bill, but he canceled. So at the last minute, the audience didn't even know. So they're expecting Ted Nugent and ZZ Top. And here we are, they, they announce us, and here they are, the smithereens. We go out there and people start throwing stuff at us, like shoes and quarters. And I remember seeing a salad dressing bottle. And, uh, I mean, it was just crazy. So we're ducking, you know. And uh, so I guess they were just testing us out. And once we got the airplay, everything changed overnight. And then we ended up touring for 18 months on that first album. Uh, we, we circled the United States three times. I remember starting out playing in smaller venues. And then by the end of that tour, we were playing five nights at the Roxy in LA. And, uh, and you know, we, we played Radio City with Lou Reed and the Pretenders. They had us, uh, so we played five nights at, at Radio City. So it was a really exciting time. It, it, it happened so fast, but it, slow, it was a slow start, but it happened really fast. That must be pretty amazing, though, as you said. You're right. It, it's, like, it's like a momentum. It's like a snowball when a snowball gets bigger. It's like you start off in small clubs, and then all of a sudden you're at the Roxy, which, you know, is, is people love the Roxy for five nights. And, and, and with Lou Reed, I mean, as a singer and as a musician and as a band, it must be amazing to, you know, open for someone like Lou Reed. Yeah, and we became friends, and he actually played guitar on one of my songs later on in '94 on the Date with the Smithereens album. He he wanted to play guitar. He he asked to be on the record, and I said, "Well, I, I was having trouble with a solo for this particular song, Point of No Return," and and he 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 nailed it. So um, it was really really nice of him to do that. So after you, after the first album came out, how long? were you thinking you would take to have your second album out? And was the record company trying to speed the process because you guys were hot? Yeah, they, they wanted one immediately. And, uh, you know, Pat hunkered down and was working on lyrics and songs, and we got together and uh, just hashed it out. Um, uh, and then uh, I don't remember how long it took realistically but then then we went in to record it and uh we recorded it in 10 days 
which is, I mean, we were tight. We were on the road for 18 months and it was just so natural. You know, Pat, Pat came up with these uh, skeleton ideas for songs and then, you know, finished up the lyrics and we came up with our own parts um, to give it that, that smithering sound. Now, how do you, how do you come down after being on the road for 18 months? Like, how do you sit there and unwind? Because people don't know. I mean, 18 months is an amazing amount of time. And as you said, you're traveling, you're in different hotels, and I'm sure every hotel started looking the same to you after a while. How do you get, like, refocus and get back into normal life after doing something that long? Uh, There really was not a normal life at that time. I, I didn't have any kids yet. Um, you know, my, my wife at the time was, uh, was working and, um, there was no time really to unwind. I, I, uh, you just got right back into it. Um, I'm trying to put myself back in those days and, uh, I missed a lot of weddings and funerals and stuff like that. But, you know, I, I was supposed to be a best man at a wedding and I, I couldn't make that, but, um, actually two <laughs> that particular year. And, um, you just keep going. And, and I, I, I told my wife at the time that, you know what, this is just temporary, you know, just bear with me, you know, cause, uh, she was having a tough time with me being gone for months at a time. I mean, granted, I'd be able to come home for a week here and there and, uh, you know, see friends and, and whatnot, but, but that was it. It was, it was, it was a different life. It was a completely different life. Now, what was your guys' experience in when you shot videos in those early days? Because videos were so important because of MTV. Did you have a pleasant experience, or were you guys that had a low budget video? What was some? What was it like for some of the videos you shot? Nah, some of them were just a pain in the neck because you know they were trying to tell you what to do, and you know the first video we did, uh, they wanted us to wear these long overcoats. <laughs> I'm like. So we we had a you know band meeting real quick and came back and said no we're not wearing it we're just going to wear what we wear and um, yeah, um I, you know looking back it was a waste of money for for a lot of them because uh, you know they ended up costing at a certain point they it started becoming thanks you thanks to Michael Jackson <laughs> you know. Everything skyrocketed after after we made that uh, the million dollar one. So we ended up spending like a hundred thousand dollars per video towards the end, and MTV wasn't playing it. Uh, he wasn't. They weren't playing each one. Um, the only ones that were really heavy were Blood and Roses and uh, Girl Like You, and the others were just uh, you know they played occasionally, and it was just a total total waste of money. And that comes out of our record royalties. So there you go. We spent all the money on the videos and then we weren't getting any record royalties. Any money we made was from our, our sweat of uh, touring, you know? Now that's, that's to me that, that would piss me off that it, cause if you guys could say, Hey, you know, we don't want to spend a lot of money on the video, but of course then MTV was sitting there and they, as you said, one of the videos that would piss me off as a musician that you couldn't make that call, but it was a record company that made those calls. Right. Yeah, and then we owe them the money, you know, because they they front the money for it. It's it's uh, wasn't a good system, you know. There was there were no guarantees. Now, as you're going through and you're playing, 
how what are your goals do you do you still do you want to be a huge band or are you happy that you're you're playing these great gigs what's in your guys mind at, at that time at that time i and still today i i look out into the audience and i see a lot of happy faces people are just having a great time and they're they're thrilled and um I mean, I saw it the other night. It, it just blows my mind. And um, I just love playing. You know, I, I never considered myself a rock star. I would never use that, that term to describe myself. I'm a working musician, and I have passion. Ben, Dennis and I, and I know Mike, too, we have a passion for, for playing music and escaping from, you know, the day-to-day -day life and 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 just giving people enjoyment as well as ourselves. You know, I, I enjoy the hell out of it. And every time I get on stage, it's a hundred percent. You're getting a hundred percent. You're not getting uh I'm not dogging it. None of us are dogging it. Now, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. <laughs> now, uh, you also, I was going on your website and people's website is jimbabjack.com. What was it like? And this, and this is the funniest thing I've seen on the website. Cause I used to watch the show. What was it like playing on the Joe Franklin show? <laughs> well, we didn't actually play. Dennis and I did an interview with him. You know, he, I don't know if he's one of those people that had a photographic memory, but he knew a lot. He knew so much about us and he gave it, he, it was a great interview. It was so much fun. Um, I don't know how he did it, but <laughs> it was just amazing. I don't know. Who, I, I did get some calls at the time that, hey, I saw like, Joe Franklin. Like, really? You, you actually saw that? But uh, it, was, it was fun to do. Dennis wanted to do it. And, uh, you know, I just tagged along. And, um, yeah, it was, it was great. It now, was I, great. We were, we, were tr we were trying to get on his show before we got signed. But, he, um, you know, they kept blowing us off. And I guess we weren't, we weren't famous enough to be on the show back then. A lot of people don't even know who Joe Franklin is. And if you grew up in this area, it's just like a lot of people don't know who Uncle Floyd is. You know, if you grew up in this area, you know who they are. And they're, they're, they're like icons to us. I mean, it's just funny that people <laughs> don't know. Like you say Uncle Floyd and a lot of people go, who the hell is Uncle Floyd? And you go, Oogie. And they go, who the hell is Oogie? And I'm like, hey, you have to be from New Jersey. Yeah, it's, it's very isolated. I mean, uh, <laughs> um, the, I, I actually... <laughs> I have a couple of uh, Uncle Floyd's 45 records that <laughs> when we did his show, he was selling them at like the, the, the reception desk. <laughs> so I, I have the Oogie single, La Dida Da, and uh, I have uh, Deep in the Heart of Jersey. <laughs> you know? So we still have those singles. Now, you also did SNL. What was that like? Because everyone says back in the day, because everyone watched SNL, after you played, people just recognized the band and people, your record sales went up. What was that? Did that happen to you guys? Yeah, it was a little better than the Uncle Floyd show. Um, <laughs> we sold, according to Capitol Records, we sold uh, uh, 100,000 copies of our 11 album uh, after that appearance. Um it was it was it was it was so much fun. Um, there was a rehearsal on Thursday, and then we did uh, a show at seven thirty to an audience, and then and then live at, at eleven thirty. And they 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 taped the seven thirty show in case there's something wrong with the um, it, it, 
when they do it live and then it goes to California later, if, if they want to change the skit, they can always replace it with the 7.30 show. I think that's how they work it. Um, it was exciting. It was just really exciting. They sent the limo to pick me up and we stayed in New York and uh, there was an after party that lasted till five in the morning. Uh, it was just, uh, you felt like you're on top of the world. You know, you're live in New York. I mean, come on. <laughs> you know? And it was all downhill from there. <laughs> now, well, as it been, you, you guys been around for a long time. When when Pat passed, how did that affect you as a band? Because you know, I think you've been a girl. You guys have been together for what thirty nine years now, or forty years? Yeah, yeah. What what is that yeah. like? I mean, you knew, I'm sure you knew something was coming, but as a band, do you sit there and say? You know, that's our backbone. That's our brother. You know, because you guys have been around for so long. How does a band deal with that? Because it's something that you know, it's it's like a brother. I know it's not easy, and I tell people it's not easy. Um, but here's the thing. I, you know, I lost my wife to uh, cancer. It's going to be three years now, and uh, a lot of life changing events, and. Uh, I guess in a way that sort of prepared me for this. It's like, you know, what am I going to do now? What am I going to do? I'm going to, you know, go to work, sit in an office, in a cubicle, and, you know, or, you know, music is our therapy, too. And it's our legacy. We created this sound. And, um, you know, even though Pat wrote most of the lyrics, we I also wrote songs with him and we all wrote songs together it's our music it's our legacy and people overwhelmingly want to see us play and and i could see it on their faces uh, especially last week we, we, we did four shows and um it's it's like therapy for me and uh, and people want to see us so somebody's got to play this music i mean you can't just let it die i think if you just stop playing it's just going to go away and people are going to forget about you and I, I don't think pat would want people to forget about his uh his legacy either no. so yeah no go ahead no and and uh, i mean i think that's it and it also uh, our friends you know we have marshall crenshaw who actually played on our first album especially for you played keyboards on uh, Strangers When We Meet and he played a six string bass on uh, on uh, White Castle Blues and uh, and Robin Wilson who's a, who's a huge fan of ours um, he was working at a record store in Tempe, Arizona when we came through signing autographs and he was, he was a fan since before the Gin Blossoms and, and there are quite a few other singers that want to um, guest sing with us so I, I think the way we're going now, I mean, we're not looking for any permanent singer, is uh, to let our friends uh, sing our songs and um, and have fun with it. And, and it's, 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 it's exciting for us, too, and it makes it interesting for the audience, too, to hear different people singing um, our songs. Um, so, and, and I thought it would be kind of, we don't want anybody that sounds like Pat. I think that's a little creepy because then you're replacing him and it's, it's not about replacing Pat. You can't replace Pat. He's 
a wonderful singer, a wonderful songwriter, one of the best in the world. And um, But uh, the music needs to be heard. And who better to play it than the, the three guys that, that played on the records and have been doing the live shows for all these years. Now, how are the fans uh, taking to it? Because, I mean, they love your band. Are they sitting there? Because it's funny, Robin was on my show a few weeks ago, and he was really excited because he's like, you know, I'm going to be going out with the Smithereens. And how do the fans take it? Because I think your fans are loyal fans. And especially, you know, if you play in Jersey in this area, people here are, are loyal. I mean, bands that play have been around for a while. We're going to we're going to support have the how have the fans been. Have they just been loving the shows? Yeah, overwhelmingly. I mean, we are so lucky that we can uh, bounce back from this uh, tragedy uh you know our fans are, are very loyal and um and you know robin you know he's so enthusiastic and, and so is marshall about fronting the band that it's exciting for them too and they're not using cheat sheets they, they practice i mean they robin he, he puts so much work into the phrasing and everything i i hear him rehearsing like before a show in the, in the next room and it's just total professionals you know we're, we're working with um putting 100 percent out and, and it shows i mean the show we did in new york at sony hall was was incredible as was um down in virginia recently at the state theater and it was just um it was so exciting i feel like i'm 18 again i really do now, you, a while back, you were toured with Tom Petty. What was that like, playing with someone like that who also has such a uh, dedicated audience? Were the crowds just amazing every night? They were. I mean, geez, we got a standing ovation every night, which for an opening act is almost unheard of. And sometimes I'll go to a show and there's an opening act, and you know, people aren't in their seats yet. It was just... Uh, and I saw Mike Campbell on the side of the stage every night and watching. <laughs> kind of made me a little nervous. But I told him after the show that he's, he's, you know, he's one of those guitar players that I really respect as a player, you know, uh, and and not wasting any notes, you know, in the, in the solos and not just showboating or just playing as many notes as fast as possible. It's it's all melodic and. Anyway, I got off on a tangent, but it was really exciting uh, to open for Tom Petty. They were so respectful of us and and uh, uh, their crew, everybody. And uh, yeah, I miss Tom too. But there's a situation where now that's that's totally different. Where you lose Tom Petty, you can't go on as Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. <laughs> but, um, so, but you know, we were a band. It's it's a little different, and we're we're not on that level. But man, it was exciting. I was uh, I was thrilled to to be on that stage with, with Tom Petty. Now, did they did like Tom Petty call you, or did the record company? I mean, how did you end up opening for Tom Petty? <laughs> I mean, how does that happen? I always wonder, like, how do people open for acts? I mean, I know in the beginning a record company puts you with someone, but I'm sure Tom Petty yes. pulled your music. But did they did Tom Petty say, "Hey, man, we want the Smithereens to open for us," or how did it happen? Yes. Well, you know, let me go back. When we, were, we had the blow-up album in 91, the, the record company asked us, uh, hey, 
can you put Tom Cochran as your opening band for, for like a, a, a month? We need, we need to break a song called Life is a Highway. So, you know, we did them a favor. We did the top of the record a favor, and Tom Cochran had this huge hit with Life is a Highway. To fast forward to 2013 with Tom Petty, now I asked Tom personally if this is true because my manager told me that Tom Petty asked for us. And I, I said, that's bullshit. You know, I, I, I can't believe that. That's, that's like something you see in a movie, you know. Uh, so I saw Tom, in, Tom Petty in the hallway at one of the shows, and I asked him, I said, did you, did you really ask for us? And he says, oh, yeah. He, he heard us on Sirius XM. It was on um, Little Steven's Underground show. And he heard uh, a song called Sorry. And uh, and he he it was just the right time where he didn't have an opening act for this this block of shows in in the Midwest and in Canada, and he said he called his manager and, and asked asked for us, and so he said no, it was wasn't bullshit. So um, yeah, that's that's a real story. It's it's, it's true. Now I know you also have a day job. How does that yeah. work? I mean, just how does that work with your coworkers? It's funny. I talked to a um, a guy, the lead guitarist from Warrant, who left the band and did computers. And st- people will go, "Oh, you were in that band," and now he has another job where he gets to go out on the road. But how did you end up being in the bank business? Because you were in a band, but was it just something that you said, "You know what? I need more security." It was at a time. When we weren't playing many shows, it goes back to 2001, and my neighbor um, was in the World Trade Center when it was attacked. He was on the 42nd floor, and he made it out, and he was one of those guys that you'd saw in the footage with the, his suit was all white from all the dust and everything, and I didn't know if he was dead or alive for at least four hours that particular day on 9-11. And just coincidentally, uh, a month later, he's walking his dog, and my wife had been bugging me because uh, we weren't playing many shows, and she, my wife suggested that maybe I should get a job, you know, because paying for health insurance was really expensive, and uh, things just weren't happening the right, the right way, and yes, I did need the security. So my neighbor was walking his dog, and I... I Half jokingly said, you know, my wife wants me to get a job. And he just right away, he said, you know what? There's somebody that just left. I'll give you a call on Monday. And I said, wait, 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 wait. What do you mean? I mean, I can't, I can't go to work. I don't know anything about it, about banking. I have no resume. And he said, don't worry about it. Just, you know, uh, make make a resume and then you'll learn what you need to learn. So, you know, I, I started out in New York, coincidentally, right across the street from Radio City, <laughs> where, we, where we played a bunch of times. And I actually started tearing up a little bit, like, what the hell did I do in my life? You know, that I'm, I'm working in an office now. But, you know, it, it, it does provide, um, you know, a steady salary. And, you know, I used my vacation time to go tour. Um, and... You know, when the Tom Petty tour came up, that was kind of rough because it was during a time where 
employees were not allowed to take off because it's it's heavy heavy uh, season, right? And I went to my boss and I told her about the Tom Petty thing, and she never heard of Tom Petty. She what? And going back, never heard of Tom Petty, never heard of YouTube, nothing. The people that I work with, and this is maybe this answers some of your original question. The people I work with don't really know anything about music. There, I work with people that are Chinese, uh, Korean, Japanese. Uh, my boss is from Trinidad. Um, what else? Uh, just all kinds of denominations, and they're they're really not. They wouldn't know. <laughs> they, they actually, I'm so anonymous there, and I actually love it. You know, I, I I love just going to work and doing my work and not being not talking to anybody about you know music or anything like that. It's 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 actually good. It's good for me. It, it gives me some sort of balance. You know, it keeps me grounded too. It's amazing. Does that make any sense? Yeah, but it's amazing that they don't recognize, like, they don't know who you are because we don't, you know, we don't think that because, you know, I mean, I grew up with, I love music and it's something that, you know, back when I was, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, I was doing stand-up comedy and I sold fax machines and and people in the office yeah. knew, I mean, it was nothing big. I was playing Philly clubs, but it's just weird that you, that, you know, you guys have gold records and these people have no idea who you are. Now, to me, that's just, that's, and it's probably is refreshing for you because people would probably be like, hey, hey, can you get me tickets? Hey, can you give me this? Like, yeah, no. And then one of my bosses, when Pat died, you know, saw this, there was a lot of hubbub at, at work and, and then she went online and noticed that, you know, the New York Times had an obituary for him and all this, and, and, you know, all this stuff. And she's like, I didn't realize you were that famous. I said, I'm not, I'm not that famous. And she said, what are you doing working here? And I said, well, there's health insurance, there's steady pay. I said, you know, I don't want to get into it, but, you know, people think you're rich because you have a gold rep, a couple of gold records and you're on Saturday Live and whatnot. It's, it's not reality. You know, there's a very small percentage of the Bruce Springsteen and U2. I mean, it's, it's very small. Uh, that are making uh, a lot of money. And um, so here we are, <laughs> just uh, uh, doing what we love doing. And uh, I could safely say it's not about the money. <laughs> now, now, how are you, are you? Are you tight with the New Jersey music community? Like, because New Jersey has so much great talent. Like, who are you tight with a lot of those people? You know, like Stevie, little Stevie, you know, do they, they all know your music? Do you, I know you had a big uh, benefit on the, uh, for, uh, Bobby Bandiera. Uh, yeah. Oh, no, the, the one, uh, just a while ago, uh, it was for Pat. It was a tribute to, to, Oh, right. With little Steven. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. Yeah. He put that together and, um, yeah, it's not like, uh, well, I, you know, I haven't kept in touch with him, but, uh, but I, I thought you were going to talk about Bobby Bandiera, who was, uh, uh, you know, in, in Bon Jovi and, and with Lil Steven, um, uh, he had me play at the Count Basie Theater recently for, for a hope benefit, uh, um, benefit right before Christmas. But, uh, I, no, I mean, the thing is, I don't have the time. Uh, I, I wish I did, but you know, my day job takes up all my time. And, uh, so I don't get to hang out with other musicians and stuff. Uh, it's only when I'm on the road 
that uh, that I can do that. Now, are you planning more shows? Uh, because you know you're doing a few shows now, and then how yeah. do you how do you decide which ones Marshall play and which ones Robin plays? It's because Robin's on tour. I mean, both because Marshall and Robin both are on tour. How do you decide where they're playing? I know in California, which is coming up, you're playing with Marshall. Yeah, that's because the, the, the Gin Blossoms are on tour in February, and I think they're playing the same places like a couple of weeks later as the Gin Blossoms. So, um, you know, it, it's all their schedule, you know. And, and, and you know, the, Susan Cowsill wants to sing with us. She's an old friend um, and uh, from the Cowsills. They, they sang on, on a song of mine called Now and Then back on the Blow Up album. I don't know if you ever heard it, but it's they, they did a wonderful job on it. We've been friends ever since. She's interested in fronting the band for a few shows, and that would be really cool to have a female uh, singer singing our songs. It would be a whole different take on it, and uh, it would be exciting. So it's just scheduling. I know they're going to be on tour in the spring and the summer, but and there's also Ted Leo and and the pharmacist. He, he you know, there's so many people that want to sing with us. It's it's all about the scheduling. You know, um, for the guest singers. So, do it's a lot of work putting it together. It's not easy uh, with the schedules. And then we also have to prove to the um, promoters that we're going to sell tickets. And thank God, so far we've been uh, we've been doing great. Now, now, what areas do you like to play the best? Because we you know I lived in L.A. and I now I, I grew up in New Jersey. I live back in New Jersey, and I see the difference. Even though L.A. is a lot of transplanted people but from all over but what where do you feel that you enjoy playing the most like if someone said hey you know what here's the deal jim you you can play three cities what would they be wow three is probably not enough because <laughs> uh they're all i mean cleveland is 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 wonderful for us. Chicago is wonderful. New York, um, Washington, D.C. area, Boston. Um, those are all like real diehards. And, but we get, uh, not emails, what do you call them? <laughs> On Facebook, messages, right? Uh, come to Atlanta, come to Florida, come to Nebraska. It's, you know, it, it really, it depends on the clubs and, and the promoters if they're willing to take a chance on it. And even when Pat was alive, we weren't playing those markets too much because uh, I'm not sure if there's enough people there to... It wouldn't be cost-effective. You know, it's very expensive to travel and very expensive for hotels and rent-a-cars. I mean, you're talking, you know... And we're not going to... We're not going to share rooms i'm not gonna right. <laughs> bunk up with dennis you know we all need our own room so you you know you get you got like five rooms at at 150 bucks a piece and then you got flights and uh you know uber car rental food and just uh it takes a lot you know i know there's some bands that probably still get to get into a van and just travel but you know we, we can't do that it's just uh, impossible, especially with my job. But I don't know if I'd want to do that anyway, to, to all get into a van and, and go to Nebraska to play a club. You know, it's just it's just not realistic. Now, now on your website, it says you love White Castle burgers. Is that true? Yes. 
<laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I, well, I, you know, it's I'm, funny. I never, what? I never knew what white, I went to college at Stockton state down in South Jersey and I never knew what a white castle was. And the guys from North Jersey would come down and tell us about white castle. And we were so fascinated, man. And then finally one opened in Philly for like two months and we all went there and I'll be honest, we would get the microwavable ones too. It's, it's pretty good stuff. <laughs> the mi- yeah, it's not as good as getting it fresh at three in the morning. Right. Uh, as a matter of fact, it, it's been a tradition. We, we've been playing BB um, Kings for 19 years. And, well, now it's gone, so we played Sony Hall. But on the way back, I would ha- we would stop. My, my kids would, they came to the show again this year since they were little, but they're, my oldest is 30 now. Our tradition is to stop at White Castle on the way home after the New York show. <laughs> so I got a Crave case and, and milk sizzle through in the morning. But you know what? I've gotten to know the, the company personally, and they've been uh, – it, it's it's not – you can't buy a franchise. It's it's a family-run business. And they are they are so cool. They – they donated ten thousand dollars to the Pat Museo Scholarship Fund. They donated five thousand dollars to my wife's Memorial Fund uh, Scholarship Fund. They're just a great, great company. And um, you know, uh, um, besides <laughs> loving their burgers, they, they're they're great people. You know, what what more can I say about them? That's that's yeah. That's oh, awesome. and and I'm, I'm and and I'm in a, uh, there's a White Castle Hall of Fame, and I remember telling little Steven about this at the show when, when they donated the money and he said, wait a minute, there's, there's a white castle hall of fame. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm in it. Me and the guys from uh, Harold and Kumar, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and, and usually they, 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 uh, nominate people that have done some charity work or have some extraordinary story to tell about white castle. And in my case, it was, you know, with my friend from high school, Bob Bob Banta, we wrote the song together, and uh, it ended up being uh, a big college hit back in the '80s. And uh, people still yell out for it at shows. Now, so. you you came out with an album called Covers. Yes. How did you pick the songs? I mean, was it was it a did you go over it with each other, or did you each have a song to pick? How did you decide what songs would be on that? No, it was just basically, you know, this was something we were working on when Pat was still alive. Pat, Pat wanted to put it out. And uh, he had a prototype going of it. Um, they're just leftover tracks that, uh, most of them, that uh, when we'd have extra time in the studio, we would just knock off a song. Um, some of them were, were not. Some of them were, were planned but, um, as B-sides or whatnot. But for the most part, if we had a little extra time, the producer would say, hey, you want to just play something? And they would record it. And then it was just sitting in the can, you know, like uh, we were just screwing around like your blues by the Beatles. I mean, we, and we didn't intend on recording it that day. It was just like, hey, do you know this one? <laughs> just kind of just uh, blew through it. And, it. and it was usually just one take. So, you know, Pat... Pat, you know, he, he was an archivist, as is our drummer, Dennis, and, you know, he realized, wow, we have a we have enough here to put out whole albums and more worth of, of cover songs, and people should hear it. So that that's how that came about. 
Now, is there new music in your future? Do you guys want to write more? Absolutely. Okay, now, now, are you, how do you write? What's your writing process? It's always different. I mean, uh, sometimes it's the music first, sometimes it's the lyrics or the melody. And now with the iPhone, I can, uh, when I have an idea, I can just hum it in there. Or sometimes if I'm making dinner, I'll stop and go in my room because I got an idea and I'll pick up the guitar and tape it and put it on my phone. Um, and then uh, go from there and see if anything gels. And usually it's with a hook. It's, um, you know, with some lyric, a lyrical hook. And then you just build on that. Uh, but it's always different. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, we, we talk about it. You know, we talk about, you know, with Robin and Marshall and Susan and Ted, Leo, that, uh, you know, we're going to be, we're, we are going to be working on some new songs. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's awesome. And, um, yeah, I mean, we, we're, that's, that's, we're a working band. I mean, I keep telling people we're, we're, uh, lifelong musicians, you know, we're, we're in it for life and we're not going to stop. I mean, why, why should we stop? Right. Exactly. Now, one, one final question I want to ask you now that, you know, Pat's gone and when you play live, you were along for so, you know, you were guys together for so long and you have Marshall and you have Robin who loves your band, but do you, is there a trust factor ever? Because you knew exactly what Pat would do. Is it something, is it hard to adjust and, Put your complete trust into these new singers. It was hard at first because I mean, it's been a year now since Pat passed away. I mean, believe it or not, and time really flies. It really does. In the beginning, I used to rely on Pat. Like, I don't know what it is. You're a creature of habit. Humans are creatures of habit. And when there was a, if there was a solo coming up, I expect Pat to say, Jimmy you know, before the solo. And when I don't hear it, sometimes I get a little lost and, and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to play a solo here? <laughs> you know? um, so, um, you know, I just had to adjust. And, and Pat is with us. I mean, he's there with us every night when we play. I feel his presence. And uh, Marshall, Robin, they've, they've really adjusted to the whole situation. And it's just, uh, it's amazing how, it works. It's just, it amazes me, you know, but it, but it, but it does work. Well, I want to thank you for taking time from your, I know you're busy today and uh, you're going to be going to California, which is great. Do you have ever, any plans to ever try to get to Philadelphia? We would love to see you in Philadelphia. Yes, we'll be back at the World Cafe. I'm not sure when. There were some things we had to work out. We didn't make it this January because, again, we used to play the World Cafe for, what, 18 years in a row every January. But I, I think there might be something, I don't know, in the middle of the year. And if not, I'm going to, you know, see if we can go back there in January next year. But uh, absolutely, you know. Uh, and then there's Sellersville, which I'm, I'm not sure of. We haven't been back there in a, in a little while. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, the management and booking agent, are, we're all working out the details and and. The thing about booking it that far in advance is we don't know who the lead singer is going to be. Right. <laughs> so it's it's sometimes it's difficult for the booking agent and and the venues to decide whether they want us to to play. Um, so yeah, it's I leave it up to the professionals. 
Well, I want to thank. But I, okay. From what I hear, we will be back. Good, because yeah. we want to see ahead. it. We want because Philly, Philly loves you guys, and Philly loves good music. And it's funny right now. It's so, it seems like there's so many bands that are are just playing live and it's so great if you love it's such a great time if you love live music and like i went to see willie nile and the uh the light of day tour at the world cafe uh two weekends ago. yeah and such a great show and there was bands from new jersey i really didn't know there was the two guys i forget who the openers were and it's just great because the philadelphia new jersey scene of music has just been so strong and and i don't think it gets yeah. the recognition sometimes it deserves yeah you know, it's funny, Willie Nile, I ran into him on the street when I was working in New York, and, and we were talking about our day jobs, because <laughs> he was doing some proofreading. And we we both played uh, at Carnegie Hall at a Who tribute. And I said to him, are you going to work tomorrow? He said, he said yeah, I said, me too, i got to go, go to work in the morning. <laughs> and here we are playing at Carnegie Hall, <laughs> you know. Um, so... But and yeah, Philly. I didn't mention Philly when you asked me about my favorite cities. Jesus, um, we always had a, a great sellout crowd at, at the World Cafe. It was always what a great audience there, you know. And and we always come out for a meet and greet after the show to sign autographs. People bring their albums and stuff, and uh, you know we'll sit there for an hour or more and just uh, talking to to our fans. And it's you can't beat it. You just can't beat it. It's awesome. It's, well, it's good. For, I'll yeah. be there when you play in Philly again. You'll see me, and I'll get to meet you, and uh, I'll tell all my friends to go. And I know you have the dates of February 7th. You're in Agora Hills at the Canyon Club. February 8th, you're at the Canyon Club again. You're at the uh, Canyon Club in Santa Clarita. I didn't know there was two Canyon Clubs in now. Pasadena, the Rose is yeah. a great place, and the Coach House is a great place. Yeah, that's another one. That club we've been playing since 1986. And they still have the same damn tables. Have you ever been there? Yes. Because <laughs> during Blood and Roses, I go out onto the tables. And I don't know if I'm going to do it this year because they're kind of rickety, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same tables that have been there since the 80s. Uh, so I don't know if I'm going to do that this year. Well, well, have fun. I want to thank you for taking time. People, go follow. Go to officialsmithereens.com. You can also go to... Uh, uh, Jim's website is jimbabchak.com. People go to my website, coopertalk.net. Uh, you find over 700 episodes. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Follow me on Twitter. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week. <laughs>